Hello and welcome to the first of our panel discussions today on the vision for the ARC. I'm Tim Burke, EG's Deputy Editor. We'll be debating the merits of the government's ARC vision consultation, the launch of which follows its confirmation of work on a spatial framework for the ARC earlier this year. That will be promoted over the coming two and a half years with a 12-week consultation on the vision kicking that process off. How significant will the role of the real estate industry and property market be for the ARC and how can they help the area to reach its full potential? To tackle that, I am delighted to be joined by Patrick McMahon, senior partner at Bidwells, David Marks, co-founding partner at Brockton Everlast, Liz Peace, former chief executive of the British Property Federation and an advisor on property politics and the built environment, and Ian Gilby, partner and head of residential at Pinsent Masons. Thank you all for joining morning. EG today. Morning. Good morning. Patrick, I'm going to turn to you first. Uh, set the scene for us. What is at stake when it comes to getting the framework, the, the vision for the arc right? What are we playing for here? Well, we're, we're playing, and I, and I don't think this is too, too big a description, we're playing for the UK's place in the global economy. Um, the ARC is an enormous success at the minute with an uh, output of about 115 billion uh, into the UK economy. And there's the potential to quadruple that output, um, so to almost 400 billion. And that's what we're playing for. And it's seen as um, a leading uh, light right around the world in terms of science and technology. And that's what we've got to cherish and nurture and develop. And I, I think it's as simple as that. It's a big, big vision. So the government has said that it wants the area to be, uh, and I'm quoting here from the spatial framework announcement, but a brilliant place to live, work and to travel in. I, I guess if we tackle each of those in, in turn, when we think of the knowledge economy, we probably go first to the uh, to the work part. What are the what are the big opportunities there? Well, certainly, as far as the work part is concerned, um, in order to allow for all of this um, this economic development to come forward, we're going to create we're going to need to create a lot of real estate to match it, and. Our research shows that we're going to need around 20 million square feet of new labs and offices right across the arc. So it, it's big scale development, but as you said earlier, this has to be really good development. This is a big, big change in a very speckled part of the world, and it has to be done well, really, really well. Ian, on that notion of making the area a, a, a brilliant place to live as well, talk us through what we need to see in terms of the residential offering. Well, there, there needs to be a step change, uh, Tim, in my, in my view, both in terms of scale, but also um, quality and uh, the comprehensive nature of development. Um, there, there's, a, there's a tension at the heart of, of this ambition, which is um, a localism versus regionalism agenda. And uh, I think unless government is brave and bold 
and take some 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 quite big steps in terms of moving this to more a more regional approach there's a danger that we'll end up with piecemeal development both economic employment development but also housing development and if we end up with piecemeal development and bearing in mind there's 26 27 local authorities involved in the in the geography of the region uh, it will end up with um, a sum that's less than its than its parts so the really critical thing here and this is i mean this is why the the government's approach to the um the regional spatial strategy for the arc is is welcome uh is that they take a long hard look at the mistakes that have been made before they learn from those mistakes and they take a truly joined up and comprehensive approach to the to the spatial arc and to the spatial strategy in that way, we can ensure that the, the housing that's delivered uh, is, is best in class, both in terms of the community and social infrastructure that's provided, but also in terms of the green agenda, uh, biodiversity net gain. So it's that comprehensivity and that bigger regional approach, I think, which is going to be so important, Tim. Liz, what's been learned from history when it comes to large-scale infrastructure regeneration projects that we should be bearing in mind now as we look to the future of, of the ARC? Gosh, yes, we can we can all sort of think back to some of these uh, some of these big projects. I, I guess the first thing is they're never as straightforward as you think they're going to be. Large-scale regeneration is hugely, hugely complicated. Things intervene to stop it, to, to thwart the, the best government ambitions. I mean, I think this is great in concept. I absolutely love this idea of sort of, you know, joining up Oxford, Cambridge and everything in between, you know, nine, I think it's nine academic institutions that could be the basis of this. Um, but the, the, the problem is the, the, the search for the, the big picture solution takes quite a long time. I mean, even this, this discussion we're having today about, you know, the extended period for producing a spatial framework and all this sort of thing, two and a half years away. In the meantime, the world doesn't stand still. And, and things happen. Um, there will be real estate people, dare I say it, who are going to dive in trying to make a quick buck here or there, um, you know, which are going to lead to the, 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 the piecemeal development. There are going to be challenges over the infrastructure. Think how long it took to actually get Canary Wharf going. You know, and, and it was blatantly obvious from the beginning that what Canary Wharf needed was big infrastructure to get in and out of there. But how quickly did we actually manage to achieve that? So, so whilst I, I applaud the vision, I think we've got to be very careful uh, not to sort of think this is the, the only way of actually making things happen and encouraging progress uh, in, the, in this huge area. I think that's the other problem. You know, this is bigger than Docklands. This is far bigger than King's Cross. It's bigger than my little OPDC, which is big in itself. It's bigger than UK Central Curzon, you know, all these other big regeneration projects. And it's just the sheer scale of it, which, yes, I applaud ambition, but let's just be realistic about how we're going to deliver that and in what time scale. Where should we be looking for inspiration? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I mean, I think I, I don't know sort of big overseas projects terribly well, only what I've sort of read up on the Internet, you know, the sort of the Hudson's Yard type of thing. David may have some some, some interesting, uh, interesting examples of this. I mean, I've always felt that, you know, if you looked at some of the European capitals, where you actually have an inspiring political leadership that can pull this together. I mean, we all cited Barcelona uh, and, and what was achieved in, in Barcelona around the uh, around the Olympic Games. And I wonder if that 
probably the the key to this is finding the the the, the right degree of leadership. And I, I think in this case, the slight problem is you're spanning so many difficult different political domains, mm-hmm. and we all know how how sensitive politicians are about you know, local and central about giving up any of their any of their ground. So so I think you've got to have some sort of light touch overarching approach. And, and then try and inspire the, the the leadership in the the sort of different parts of the of the arc to work together, and that's one hell of an ask, as we as we all know. David, how do we um, how do we address that, and how might you compare what you what you see happening in the arc to um, to projects that that you've witnessed elsewhere? Um, I think I. I... I'm not a I'm not a cricket fan at all, um, but there is a sort of cricket analogy I think to uh, how the private sector capital is uh, looking at the arc and how it is sort of playing it, if you like. Um, if you know, if, if private sector was you know at the crease, um, you know, I think at the moment, from what I can see, the majority of the capital, uh, and certainly Brockton Everlast, are very happy in sort of playing for ones and twos, you know, going for one run, two runs or whatever. And what I mean by that is we're investing in Cambridge, we're investing in Oxford. Um, but right now we're not investing across the other part of the banana. You know, we're not in Milton Keynes, we're not in Bedford or Bedfordshire, and we're not taking, you know, we're not going for sixes. We're not optioning two, 300 acres of land that's green belt, thinking that, you know, the moonshot is going to happen and that government planning policy and transport infrastructure and digital connectivity is all going to align at some point over the next four to eight years. Those 300 acres will be driven through the planning system uh, in a cohesive way with placemaking being supported, you know, at a local level and that it becomes a place. Those, if you like, you know, are, are, are the sort of, you know, the sixes. Right now, I think that most private capital is saying it's great that government has this vision to support the arc and to, you know, as you mentioned earlier, to potentially treble or quadruple the GDP output in this region. But until those things are really concrete, I mean, like properly, and I don't mean with respect, ministers or junior ministers getting up and announcing a document. I mean, swinging hammers, laying cables, laying train lines, you know, with with committed capital. Um, I think the most of the private sector is going to say this is an incredibly interesting part of the UK mm-hmm. to invest in, but I'm going to be in Oxford, Cambridge, because I can literally cycle, you know, to to and from these places. And if government has this fantastic vision to connect the arc, that's fantastic. But I'll go there when I can really see it happening. Are those fair concerns, Patrick, from you know, discussions that you you and the team have with with clients? Do you understand that view? Yeah, I do. Um, and, you know, there's a hell of a lot to do. Um, mm. um, there's a hell of a lot to do. And as Liz said, it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a really sustained effort that's got to span politics. It's got to be something that we hold on to. Um, but, you know, glass slightly fuller. Um, I, I really applaud what the, the start of all of this. You know, we've got actually lots of different government departments all bound in together, not all just talking to each other and saying the right thing, actually bound in together. And there are some really new things that government is trying here. And they're 
to me, they're talking in a very transparent way and a very inclusive way. And it's a great start. I mean, it, it is a long journey, but um, I think they're making a really good start. And it's down to all of us and their successors as to whether we're going to actually make this happen, as whether we're going to persuade David um, to actually get a, the checkbook out um, in the middle of the banana. Can, can I just throw in one one thought? I mean, it's, it's probably not hugely constructive, but I can't resist making it. You know, I can remember sitting in umpteen ministerial meetings uh, around sort of 2010, 2011, 2012. Um, Eric Pickles was Secretary of State at MHCLG or whatever it was then called. Absolutely not allowed to mention the word regional and regional planning and regional strategies. It was banned. You know, everything was going to be absolutely local. So what I find fascinating now is that the government has readopted the idea that actually you do have to look a bit bigger than local if you want to make really big things happen. Uh, but, but I think, picking up one of the points made earlier, there is going to be this interesting tension between we have a massive regional plan, and, and, and this is seriously big, and it spans a number of very, very different types of area. But then we also have some interesting, very local challenges. And I think getting that, that balance right between the two. But, but I applaud the restoration of a discussion about regional policy. Because yeah. I, uh, I think actually, I, I think the, it was the coalition government were actually wrong to abandon yeah. regional policies in the way they did. Tim, can I just respond on that point? Please do. Just as a, again, without getting into the detail of this, but in the, the policy paper that was issued in February, there's a recognition uh, in that paper that the local plan process will need to continue. So, I mean, you know, it's it's a bit of a challenge, actually. You've got um, you know, 20 odd local authorities through the, through the arc. I'm going to resist calling it the banana. I'm going to call it the arc. Um, but you've got 20 odd authorities through the arc, um, uh, many of whom have got local plans to, to to bring forward, to finish, to review. And what they're being asked to do is to continue with those local plan processes and not wait for the uh, the spatial framework to be to be released in draft form. Now we know that the the spatial uh, the spatial framework won't be in its final form for you know two two and a half years from from now. That that is a challenge for local authorities because they're having to be cognizant of that framework which is coming, but they've also got to tackle you know the very local issues of employment, land, housing, land, social and physical infrastructure now. So it, it is a real challenge for them. And um, I mean, the sort of the main word I've written down on a piece of paper to prepare for today is resource. Um, and uh, again, this, you know, this is always the last item on the agenda. You get all the exciting vision making stuff and ambition, but there's very little said about resource. And uh, resource for local authorities is at an all time low. Mm. Uh, a resource for, for central government uh, with something of this scale, I suspect, hasn't yet been properly addressed. So for me, actually, the visioning and the um, you know the, the the broad ambition of this is absolutely welcome and supported, but actually I'd like there to be uh, an announcement or a debate you know with the minister or the secretary of state where the very first thing they talk about is resource um, because I think without the right resource in the right place at the right time, uh, this will be a very interesting theoretical exercise. What specifically do you see that's that's needed in terms of additional resource? Well, um, pl planning policy officers um, in in local authorities um, are 
in my experience, generally under-resourced. One of the big challenges for local authorities is putting together a, a consistent and accurate evidence base to support their plan-making processes. A number of clients that we're working with on the on the developer side are being asked, you know, consistently by local authorities, could you please help us with our evidence base to support our local plan? And that that puts everybody in a very difficult position because, of course, each promoter has its own evidence base that it wants to bring forward, which may or may not be consistent with all the other promoters in the local authorities area. So I think there's a, there's a lot of work to be done around evidence base to support. Certainly within the policy paper that the government produced earlier in the year, they were recognising of that. They, they saw that there needed to be a strong evidence base to support the ambition. Um, and in my view, that's something that should be prepared collaboratively with each of the constituent local authorities across across the region. David, would you agree that you'd, you'd like to see these kind of steps taken to give you that, that additional confidence in you know some of the opportunities that might lie outside of the, the traditional hunting grounds within the area that, that you've been looking at? Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel, you know, I feel sorry for most planning departments uh, that we come across are just so stressed and overworked mm -hmm. and under resourced. And you know, for me, it's such a, it's such an easy, uh, quick win for for central and local government to, well, not for local government because they are very funding constrained, but for central government, you know, the bang for the buck is huge. I mean, a you know, not going to be uh, flippant with numbers, but, you know, tens of millions of pounds allocated towards proper uh, resources for, you know, local planning departments will yield. There'll be a 24, 36 month lag, but it will yield a, a kind of step change in the, in the pace of delivery across housing, commercial space, life science, lab space, uh, other kind of, um, you know, technical and innovation type buildings. And, um, it's really something that you know that I you know I'd urge government to 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 address because um, just the pace of things is as as you know as, as you said earlier on the call no one's waiting for this region um, to you know get fully joined up uh, private sector will move um, you know into places that uh, are offering the right kind of opportunities yeah. and and the core infrastructure here especially with the universities and you know and the knowledge economy is there but to have it joined up. Uh, Transport-wise, housing-wise, digital-wise, is is a huge opportunity, and um, you know, planning is a key resource. I have to say one one other thing, um, and I, I don't know, Liz, if this is the the 2021 version of you know regional, where Eric Pickles was not allowed to say regional. You know, are we allowed to are we allowed to whisper in government's ear and say Amersham? Question mark. You know. Was that by-election shock going to reverse <laughs> all the all the things that you said that you were going to do in terms of the step change in the delivery of housing? And you know, I would, uh, you know, it's it's kind of in a way, it's not government's fault. The, the election, you know, we live in a democracy. The by-election result is the by-election result. But you know, we, it's almost like as a nation, we almost have to have a conversation with ourselves, and particularly, uh, uh, you know, dare I say, it, an intergenerational conversation. <laughs> Where we say to the older people who are very, uh, you know, have a very strong propensity to get out and vote in local elections, you know, mm -hmm. these are your kids and your grandkids and all your friends, yeah. kids and grandkids. You, you are denuding. If you are just a hardcore fundamentalist NIMBY and you're willing to, you know, sock it on the jaw to the government, 
and have a protest vote and, and allow, you know, another party in just to show government what happens if they mess with, you know, housing delivery in your backyard. It's just we'll, we'll never get out of this cycle of, um, you know, of intergenerational wealth being, you know, uh, coalescing uh, in the fully amortized mortgage free older generation mm -hmm. and having, you know, this this awful cycle of um, of capital being, you know, dripped down and inherited and not allowing younger people onto the housing ladder. And um, government almost has to have, you know, I think, a grown up conversation with the nation about why it needs to step in. And, you know, if the placemaking is done well and it's done proportionately and it's done with joined up infrastructure, it's not a terrible thing. We're not going to be concreting, concreting over the entirety yeah. of the countryside. We're talking a tiny, tiny, tiny yeah. fraction of land use going for more productive uh, uh, use. Well, I, I mean, we, we could have we could have a whole hour's discussion on the planning reforms, and 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 I have to say, I think I am not a great supporter of the way the government is going about reforming planning. Um, big question about whether it really needs to be doing what it's doing. But I think David has put his his finger on this real problem of how you actually bring into the debate about planning the people who don't live in the area that you're talking about. This is the, the incomers, the people who will want to benefit from that. It's exactly the same sort of challenge that we're having at OPDC. How do we talk to and engage the, those who haven't even thought about living there yet? But, but might in due course if you can actually create create the right sort of environment. So, so I do think that's a that's a really key part of the debate um, you know, about broadening it out beyond the people who already live in an area. You know, I, I always used to say that we're, I, I moved into a, a very pleasant rural market town uh, and ever so, 30 odd, 40 years ago. And ever since then, I've, I've supported development because if I hadn't been able to access some new development, I wouldn't have been able to move here. But there's this tendency, you know, you move in and you pull up the drawbridge behind you. Nobody else should come in. I mean, that is a real, a real challenge that you, you do have to deal with. But I'm not necessarily saying the current round of planning mm. reforms are the right way of doing that. Ian, do you, do you have some concerns that by-election results, some of the backlash that, um, that we've seen against the reforms, would you have concerns that that might influence how how the art plans are ultimately received locally? Yes, I mean, obviously, there, there's, you know, there is this inherent tension, as I said at the beginning, between, you know, the localism agenda and the sort of more more central approach, you know, the ghost, the ghost of Dominic Cummings, if I can put it in that way, um, in, in a sense. And it's, it's irreconcilable, isn't it? I mean, if on one hand you're saying it's local determination for uh, and community-led and, and locally-led, but on the other hand you're saying that this is a central government ambition, a broad arc that we want to sell internationally, uh, there's an inherent tension there. I think the good news, and just trying to um, borrow Patrick's glass, um, I think the good news is that the, the government, in, in my view, have gone about this in, in the right way, and they certainly started this journey in the right way. The digital planning agenda, the digitization of consultation is, is a key part of the reform agenda the government's come forward with. And what the last year and a half has taught us, if, if nothing else, is you can do so much more you know, from, from home remotely. And in that way, you can reach a broader cohort, a broader population. So many people who would have been disenfranchised by the planning system uh, two years ago because they weren't available to go to, you know, village hall meetings or to attend council offices to, to hear what local plans were all about. And they are now able to attend uh, remotely. 
And um, I know from some of the discussions that um, we've been having with the, the team at um, the department that they have invested heavily in a digital consultation platform, uh, that that is, you know, best, best in class and that they are trying to reach a broader population um, in the way in which they consult on this. So I think there is there is some good news there and hopefully rather than you know a failed attempt to broaden that uh, discussion it will be seen as an exemplar and something that can be used you know i mean i'm actually a big fan of regional planning because i think the country doesn't operate by local authority boundary area and uh, i you know i really scratched my head um, uh, 10 15 20 years ago when the regional regional spatial planning was was dropped so when we saw the the way in which government was addressing the arc approach now you know those of us who've been involved in the planning system for for a number of years had a sort of wry smile and thought great this is regional planning back again so i think that if they get this right it, it could be it could be really good news tim but they but they do need to, to to keep going with that broad consultation approach which they've adopted so far well let's let's delve a little more can i can Sorry, i just very go. quickly just sort of add in one other point i mean yes i clearly we, i think everything that ian's just said is is entirely entirely right the, the problem is a lot of people who object to development have a legitimate grouse because they say you're going to do this development. It's going to clog up my roads, fill up the schools. Uh, you know, how am I going to get out in the morning? How am I going to where am I going to educate my kids? I, I think if you need to, to be ready with the answers to those to those problems and mm. um, to the legitimate complaints um, about development. And you know, I was thinking of a particular development of a million miles to where I live. I had some sympathy with the protesters because nobody was talking about how we were going to put in the infrastructure to deal with the increased traffic. So, so I think actually making sure you do have this holistic approach to the impact of the development you're proposing, and I'm sure you're going to come on and talk about transport infrastructure, and that's one of the key things. If you build lots more homes, lots more offices, there will be lots more traffic. Don't, don't expect it to just sort of vanish. Um, and therefore, you've got to have the accompanying infrastructure so that you can actually say to the people who are worried, this is how we are going to deal with that. You do not need to worry about that. You don't need to object to the development because of that, because we've got that. It's part of our overall plan. And, and I think that's so, so important. Pe people may only be nimbies for a good reason in some mm. cases. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes mm. it's a bad reason. I, I absolutely accept. They may have a legit complaint. Patrick, how um, how much of a sticking point is the infrastructure, the transport piece here? Well, I think I think that you know, there's there are you know, transport's really complicated, isn't it? You know, we all travel in different ways, and on different days we travel in a different way, and we do different things, and we often thought think you know, okay, transport means a new rail line between Oxford and Cambridge. That's really important, but that's not that's not sufficient. Now, how do um, towns and cities link to each other? How do villages and market towns link to cities? It's a really really complicated piece, um, and it needs a, a comprehensive plan. It's not just about laying track. You know, the, the two, you know, the, the two bookends. And I think there's also, there's a, you know, let's face it, in, in 10, 15 years' time, we will all be electric. How long will it be before, you know, we're in um, automated vehicles? You know, 
When is that? And it, it's not going to be too long. And what will that do to traffic? And I think we've got within the arc, um, some of the people at the forefront of this technology, um, they're developing um, uh, you know, automated cars, automated vehicles, or autonomous vehicles. Um, and we're ahead of most of the rest of the world in this. So why don't we look to the arc to try and find some solutions to this? You know, a lot of our problems are traffic-based, and a lot of that can be phased out and can be delivered properly. So jumping to build more roads when roads, when we might make ourselves much more efficient and not need them. And I think it's, it's a really, really complicated subject, isn't it? But let's have a look at the, at the long future and let's see what that has in store because that might help us plan now. Mm. Now, we've we've touched on um, some of the innovations in the consultation process and this push to listen to hear from voices that might not always have been have been heard in a process like like this. Um, Liz, just how much of a challenge has it been um, in this kind of initiative to to draw in the views of people who who might not normally be aware of or even respond to a consultation process such as this? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've put your finger on it and people have alluded to it all, already. I mean, I can actually remember when the sort of regional spatial strategies were first, were first being developed and put out for consultation. I was at the BPF at the time. We were having a very amusing discussion at our policy committee and somebody sort of said, blimey, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I know what a spatial strategy is. Does it come from NASA? You know, OK, so the spelling was slightly, <laughs> slightly different. And, and who's going to give up their Tuesday or Wednesday evening to go to a debate in the local town hall, as you, you rightly say, about, uh, about a, a spatial strategy that's 15, 20, 30 years ahead of where they are now? They'll just object when something's happening on the plot next door. You know, that, that's, the, that's, what you have to, that's what you have to get over. Um, so so I, I absolutely agree with the point about, about the digitization of the process. And, you know, we've actually found, looking at my, uh, my old Oakham Park Royal experience, that we've had some terrific response uh, to the various consultations we've been doing digitally because of the, because of the pandemic. And I do feel we are starting to reach a, a much broader base than just the, the, the people who you know will object to what you're doing, because there's always a few that, you know, you, you, will never please, you will never please everybody. But it is exceedingly, exceedingly difficult. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, consultation doesn't mean that everybody who expresses a view will be listened to and their view acted upon. You, you consult and you will get a wide range of views uh, which do not agree with each other. At the end of the day, somebody and that's why we elect um, both local government leaders and central government leaders have to be brave and take a decision. And they have to accept there may be this group over here. The decision is not what they said they wanted, but the group over here did. So, you know, that, that's actually that's actually what's called leadership. That's what we elect people to do. But they, ha they will have to be brave about that. Yeah, I agree with that, Liz. And I mean, what we've got to do is we've got to help those people. And it's not about less consultation, it's about more consultation. I'm fascinated to see how this digital consultation works. Um, let's talk to the young people. Let's talk to business. Business often have a, a strong, long-term, yeah. Yeah. stable outlook um, on things like infrastructure and planning. You know, let's talk to the wider community, um, which would be great. I mean, how we get them involved in this, um, 
yeah, we're going to have to be on TikTok, on, on everything you can imagine. We're, we're really going to need to get this out there. And the whole brand of the ARC is going to need a lot of work for us to engage with um, young people and business. Um, but, you know, if we can do that, if we can get them more engaged, we're going to be able to give the product of that is going to be able to give the local politician more comfort about the decisions that they're taking and hopefully better planning decisions because as we all know there are some very poor planning decisions either to turn down planning or to compromise on planning in order to satisfy um you know the minority of objectors um and their voters so if it's all channeled through a whole resource that we can hand back to them that can make them more comfortable in making the right decisions yeah that that I, I i can see some light at the end of that tunnel but i'm going to be fascinated to see how this consultation lands properly uh, with us all i think planning consultation via tiktok sounds like a real a real breakthrough there i'm going to look forward to to seeing that but i i think to your to your point this uh if it works then this has ramifications far beyond simply the arc doesn't it this is an attempt at doing something genuinely new with the with the consultation process, this will have lessons for uh, for schemes far beyond and long after um, long after this one. Yeah, I think that I mean, and and government have been fairly clear about that. They see this as a testing ground for a number of things. You know, let's increase biodiversity rather than ten percent. Let's go for twenty percent. Let's push to carbon neutral. Let's embrace that right now. Let's make that a requirement. And in this case, consultation. Let's see, let's make it work. And then that these are things that then could be exported right around the UK and frankly, um, around the world. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a big ambition and it's, it's great to have big ambition. Um, you know, we just need to see this working in practice. We need to get it embedded. We're close to being out of time. So I just wanted to ask you all uh, for a final thought on what you think the most crucial role that real estate as an industry can play as this process gets underway. Um, David, I was going to pick on you first, if that's okay. Yeah, uh, I don't know if this is uh, answering your question exactly, Tim, but um, uh, I, I had a coffee uh, a couple of weeks ago with Chris Oglesby uh, from Bruntwood, um, who's someone we've known for a long time. Um, and we were just catching up and we were, we were both kind of laughing to each other because there was some... Um, uh, lease signed in in London uh, that we sort of we'd missed in the I have to say we'd missed it in the Estates Gazette we'd missed it in some other publications that uh, I know I'm not allowed to mention uh, rival publications and we were, we were both saying the same thing which is 10 years ago we were all consuming consumers of real estate media uh, the Estates Gazette, uh, your your rival publications, obviously the financial press as well, if you're an investor. And that was our world. And now, I don't know, is this, pod, is this podcast video as well as audio? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sort of now, you know, my reading material now, you know, the New Scientist, you know, Wired Magazine talking about vaccines, um, you know, megatrends in investing. And it's like... You know, you, you need as a real estate investor, because real estate is a lagging indicator, you know, you need to look at the, the leading indicators and the jobs that are being created in biotech, in life science, in artificial intelligence, in cyber, in telecom, in software, in gaming even. Um, and, you know, and, and these kind of things are 
on the one hand for the real estate industry it's quite overwhelming because you need to understand industries that you know some of which barely existed 10 or 15 years ago and are evolving so rapidly on the other hand it's so incredibly exciting because the job growth the economic growth uh, and and the um, the positive things that it's going to do for the UK economy if you know if government private sector the universities you know the major charitable foundations and endowments that are help funding this research if they're all joined up it, it's a fantastic win for you know for the ARC and the UK uh, but as you know as the real estate industry I would say just on a very you know on a very sort of just practical level. You know, if you if you spent the last 20, 30 years of your career walking through shopping centers or office buildings that you're involved with, you know what was going on in an office. You know, you know what a law firm does. You even know, you know, you can even walk across the trading floor. No difference between an FX trader, a debt capital markets trader. Whatever. Now you have to walk through laboratories and really understand what that scientist is doing and that they are pouring over a 15 million pound piece of equipment. You need to understand all that stuff because that is where the jobs are coming from. And it's, uh, I think it's very, very exciting. Patrick, how do you see those opportunities? Well, I think, I think David's actually right. I think, you know, actually real estate, rather than just being an enabler, um, you know, in a background enabler, needs to be right at the forefront of all of these things and needs to be right at the boardroom table of all of these companies because it's so enormously important but i think as a wider industry i mean development has been a dirty word it, it just is you just talk to anyone a developer is a dirty word it's totally incorrect in, in, in my view the majority of development is is really really exceptional and i think that we need to be more proud of it and i think that the whole good development and and bringing in much more green space much more biodiversity beautiful places to live, letting people live next to where they work. This whole, this whole industry chain, we need to get that out there and people need to understand that these new communities um, can be absolutely fabulous. And the word development should be something that we become proud of. Yeah. Ian, is, um, is the ARC and its vision a chance for, for real estate to, uh, to get that message out, perhaps to change the perception of it that some will have? Yeah, I, I I do believe so, Tim. For the right for the right people, I just taking David's analogy from the top of the meeting, um, the cricket analogy. I mean, I I entirely understand why why David is is playing you know short balls and uh, taking safe runs. But actually, what we need the development industry to do is to is to go for the boundary. So if you look around, you know, particularly around London and Southeast, the examples of where the development industry has gone for the boundary: Canary Wharf, Kings Cross the Olympic Park and the legacy that, that follows, there was some very visionary people, brave people, entrepreneurial people who took a decision to invest, you know, thinking particularly of Canary Wharf, you know, in you know, pretty much marshy swampland. Uh, what you know? Why do that? Well, because you've got a vision, and that's what we need here. And actually, the one the one thing that's missing, I think, from the the dialogue on the arc at the moment, is something that was hinted at by government earlier in the year, was finding a real champion for the arc, an ambassador. You know, Richard Branson. You know, what are you doing at the moment? But we need we need somebody. Uh, this isn't just about personalities, but we need somebody who's prepared to stand up, to set a vision, and be counted, and be accountable. 
And the, the problem with, uh, you know, all politicians are, is that they are acutely aware of the next election cycle and cabinet reshuffles. And it seems to me that we need a voice here that transcends that political cycle, because this is a 5, 10, 15, 25, 30 year project and one that can't be buffeted. By, um, by politics in, in, in the usual way. And the only reason that Canary Wharf and those other projects I've mentioned succeeded is that they were in a sense, not immune from politics, but the people who were leading them weren't necessarily politicians. Mm-hmm. So I, d- I do wonder whether there's something there that we collectively need to think about. And Liz, maybe some some last thoughts from you on how real estate can show. Uh, Ian used the the word bravery there um, in a time (laughs) like this. Well, well, I did. And and, and I'm going to pick up the cricket analogy. Not that I'm a great cricket expert, but, um, you know, I I mean, this is a a five-day lengthy test match, not a sort of T20 uh, type of... uh, uh, t- type of competition. Um, so I, I, I would like to see the real estate industry and, and you know, both Patrick and Ian have, have alluded to that. I, I'd like to see them sort of step up to this. And, and I, I do think this point about using this as an exemplar of what real estate can do. You know, we, we get we still get a lousy press. And, and, you know, and most of us don't quite know why. Well, we can think of a few good reasons, but actually showing what the real estate world is capable of doing. In, in partnering with all the various other stakeholders in this, the academic institutions, the local authorities, central government. But it's not going to be a quick win. You know, Canary Wharf wasn't a quick win. Um, Brindley Place wasn't a quick win. You know, look, look at how long it took, how many failures it took you know, before they, they actually came, came good in the end. So, so I think the real estate industry need, needs to look at its sort of patient capital model. You know, the, the, the Duke of Westminster's estate took a long time to develop. That was also built on sort of a marshy piece of West London, you know, but somebody somewhere had the vision to invest in that long term. We, we've got long term potential here, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm. And the real estate industry needs to needs to understand that, step up to the challenges that that poses. Excellent. Well, we're about out of time. Patrick? David, Liz, Ian, thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts with EG. Um, There is, as we have all said, a lot of work ahead, uh, but a huge amount of long-term potential as well. So appreciate your takes as the journey gets underway. Um, Thank you as well for watching. There is more to come from EG and the vision of the arc, so please do stay tuned.